Let's pray together. God, our creator, you are the love that binds the world together. You are the love that seeks the last, the lost, the least. We ask that by your grace and your abundant mercy, you would gather us together as we listen for the word your spirit is speaking to your people. Renew us in your love. Equip us by your spirit and send us to join with Jesus Christ in gathering all of us in. We ask this in his name. Amen. Why is it, I asked myself this week, why is it that those with the greatest abundance seem often to feel such a sense of scarcity? Take Ahab, for example. Ahab is king and certainly has all that he needs and more, and yet he wants someone else's land for a vegetable garden and is willing to bless murder in his name to get it. Jezebel presumes that anything the king wants, he may have. And she proceeds to orchestrate this murder. By contrast, this woman, this woman whose name we do not know, brings this expensive perfume and wastes it in this sign of honor and hospitality and love offered to Jesus, giving the best that she had and perhaps risking her financial security in doing so. We don't know. She may have had great means, but in any case, she pours out this great abundance. So I was wrestling this week between these two examples of how um, these two women used their power or the power that was available to them. King Ahab wants this vineyard that belongs to Naboth. Naboth is, in this case, unfortunate enough to live next to the king. Maybe being the king's neighbor seemed like a good thing at first, but he soon learned differently. So in this capital city of Samaria, the king makes this um, attempt at a bargain with Naboth, who declines to sell or trade his vineyard. And what is his reason? Because the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Ahab goes to his room and pouts. But when Queen Jezebel hears that Naboth won't honor the king's wish, she makes this plot to have Naboth killed. And once Naboth is stoned to death, the way is clear for Ahab to take possession of this vineyard, which he does. Now there are two things in this story that we need to remember about ancient Israel 
to really feel the full impact of this story. In ancient Israel, the stability of land and families was part of Israel's system of economic justice as commanded by Yahweh. So this ancestral inheritance that Naboth speaks of is connected with the practice of jubilee that we read about in Leviticus 25. Now, some of you who know the Bible very well might be thinking, well, but they didn't actually practice the jubilee, so can you really base an argument on that? Well, you can decide that for yourself, but the ethos of the jubilee, whether or not it was ever practiced, this ethos permeates many biblical texts. And it gives us a picture of God, a particular kind of picture of God and of God's justice and mercy. The provision of ancestral inheritance was so that poverty could not go unchecked through generations of particular families and exorbitant wealth grow in others. So every 50th year, all the land that had been bought and sold back and forth, if a family fell into poverty and had to sell their land, and maybe one family was doing particularly well and accumulated a lot of land, by the 50th year, it all had to go back to its original families. The, the plots that had been allotted when the people entered the land. And so everyone would return to their ancestral land on a regular timeline that they could count on. This is like a divine reset button to mitigate against generational poverty and the undue accumulation of wealth. And it's a beautiful example of how God's commands weave together justice and mercy. So Naboth is very bravely trying, on the one hand, to protect his family's most valuable gift from God, this land, but also to maintain Israel's practice around land as commanded by God. Now, not only is King Ahab abusing his power and flying in the face of these intentions, these divine intentions for how Israel's social and economic fabric would be held together, But Jezebel's methods are recklessly treacherous. She plants false witnesses to testify against Naboth, and these lies are extreme enough to get him executed. Ahab's participation in this plot is especially disturbing in light of the biblical picture of what a king is supposed to do. And actually, this is beyond just the Bible's understanding of a king, but the ancient Near East in many cultures, had this picture of a king being the one who protects the weak, who shelters the orphan and the widow, and makes sure that those who can't defend themselves have some recourse. So clearly Ahab has wandered far from his charge as king and as a servant of Yahweh. Blinded by his social position and power, Ahab had forgotten that all the land was God's anyway. A gift to be tended responsibly and divided fairly among the people. This principle of jubilee. In that chapter of Leviticus 25, verse 23, Yahweh says it as clearly as it can be said. 
the land is mine, and you are but tenants and aliens with me. And yet Ahab and Jezebel act as if they're entitled to any land they want. This sounds too familiar in the establishment of our own nation and the way land was treated and its inhabitants. And today, in the many land grabs happening around the world by the powerful at the expense of those who have very little recourse. I think especially of Colombia, where peace workers warn their partners to search their land for weapons that may have been planted there by the police so that they have a reason to make an arrest. And so then the leader of the community that is resisting takeover by these huge corporations that want to use the resources to accumulate greater wealth, the leaders get taken away on false pretenses and the resistance um, is weakened against these huge companies who obviously don't have much respect for ancestral inheritance. Ahab, Jezebel, and today various transnational corporations demonstrate similar traits. They have a sense of entitlement, an inflated sense of their own importance, and at the same time, sort of a feeling of scarcity. It seems there's never enough. We must take in more and accumulate more. There's an insatiable desire for more. And they also share a belief that they are above the divine order, which makes provision for everyone to prosper. Clearly, this is not an environment in which justice can thrive. Doing justice, or even desiring justice, seems to require at least an awareness of three interconnected things. One, an awareness that we are dependent beings, that we are dependent on God, and on one another. Two, an active awareness that everything belongs to God and everything we have is gift. I say active because we might say, well, of course, everything belongs to God and all that we have has been received, but an awareness that affects our actions. And third, an awareness of our own power and influence in any given situation. And with that, especially for those with the most privilege and the most means in a society, an awareness that to do nothing about injustice is to contribute toward it. To do nothing about injustice almost always means contributing to it, especially if we are, as many of us are, those who have particular influence and means. I think it's why we find Ahab and Jezebel's sin so repulsive. They held the power, and Ahab, as an Israelite at least, 
knew better. He knew the laws of of inheritance, these ancestral lands, and yet they did exactly as they pleased, without any regard for human life, simply for the convenience of having a vegetable garden next door. By contrast, this woman who comes to Simon's house came without entitlement, but with courage and with confidence. I think it would take a little chutzpah to barge into a Pharisee's house. If you turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Luke 7, this woman who is weeping at Jesus' feet, clearly knows her need for mercy. And at the same time, she must have had some confidence, some reason to believe that Jesus would offer this mercy, that Jesus was ready to freely give what she so needed. What's interesting is Jesus sort of talks in a circle. If you notice Verse 47, Jesus says her sins have been forgiven and that that's the reason why she shows great love. So there's a possibility that she had already experienced some forgiveness. This has been forgiven or have been forgiven, this verb could indicate that it was something that happened in the past and continues. So it could be that she already came having some sense of forgiveness. And Jesus is saying that this is the reason for her great outpouring of love. She realizes what she has received. And so she shows great love. Or she comes simply with a deep trust that Jesus would receive her. She probably had been watching him and noticing how he interacted with people. And he says, your faith has saved you. Faith that mercy is flowing freely. Faith that with her accumulated debts, she would even then at that moment be released. But in the midst of this tender moment, all Simon can see is a sinner and a prophet who clearly doesn't know who it is who's touching him and really should know better than to let her do this. And so Jesus tells Simon, who thinks he is seeing clearly, a parable about debt and forgiveness. And in telling this parable, Jesus is pushing Simon to see this woman. This woman who understands both sin and forgiveness. Who has experienced mercy and been moved to great love. Simon's mistake is in not recognizing that he has as much need of forgiveness and mercy as this woman who is known to be a sinner. He sees no reason to show great love to Jesus. Jesus should be honored to be a guest in his house. Now, 
We are not exactly Simon the Pharisee. I wouldn't presume to be that harsh as to say that y'all are just like that. But aren't we all great debtors to mercy? If we go back to the taking of this land on which we live, on which we worship, we are deeply indebted to the indigenous people of this place, to the Conestoga, the Haudenosaunee, the Lenape, the Muncie, the Susquehannock people, whom our ancestors displaced. We are all indebted to the West African people and their descendants who were enslaved and whose bodies and labor were stolen and used to produce wealth for this land on which we live, garden, work, and worship. Some of you have probably read Ta-Nehisi Coates' article in The Atlantic a couple of years ago called The Case for Reparations. In it, he says, the income gap between black and white households is roughly the same today as it was in 1970. The income gap between black and white families roughly the same today as in 1970. In 1769, a Quaker wrote, A heavy account lies against us as a civil society for oppressions committed against people who did not injure us. And if the particular case of many individuals were fairly stated, it would appear that there was considerable due to them. That was in 1769. Surely the mercy of God under which we live stretches far to include us in its embrace. And I'm trusting that we can move through the guilt we might feel or the defensiveness that rises up to shield us from the call to stand with our brothers and sisters who still live without the privileges given to white people in this society. I hope that we might be moved to show great love, realizing our debt to mercy and the great gift of God's patience and kindness to us. In our present abundance, I hope we can be motivated ultimately not by guilt but by love, seeing Jesus seeing opportunity to live alongside our neighbors with a sober awareness of the wrongs from which most of us still benefit, and to live so that more and more all are honored and deeply valued as children of God, so that all may share in the abundance of the kingdom of love. One might expect... I think one might reasonably expect from a God of just pure justice 
that by now God would have wiped out white people. I mean, considered, considering all the things that we have done. But divine justice and mercy are always interwoven. And one does not cancel out the other, but they live together in God, who allows us to go our way and who is eager for our awakening and seeing clearly and seeing rightly and repenting and joining in the new life being birthed with the justice and reconciliation of God's kingdom. If you read further in the first Kings, Yahweh even relented from the destruction he was planning to bring on Ahab and his family. And yet, the inheritance of injustice lies heavily on our streets, in our courts, in our prisons. We are all great debtors to God's mercy patience, and kindness. And when we are able to see this, we don't simply breathe a sigh of relief and go about our business, but if we truly see both our debt and God's mercy, we show great love, following in the footsteps of this unnamed woman. I'm not really interested in guilting you toward living the kingdom now. And though there are many things to be done and much, much work to be done toward true equality and reasonable reparations, I'm aware that we need to do what we can do where we are and within the gifts and skills God gives us. Maybe it's unlikely that we will be instrumental in working toward reparation and reconciliation with indigenous communities, for example. Although, if you're called to that, I do pray that you'll go with it. Maybe we won't throw ourselves into pursuing appropriate reparations for African Americans who have endured generations of being disenfranchised and second-class citizens. But we have a housing corporation in a city that has its own history of sins around housing, where black neighborhoods were destroyed on false pretense of urban renewal. And those neighborhoods, as we know, have not recovered to this day. How might we, in our place, where we are with what we have, bend even more toward justice and mercy. And we all have neighbors. How might we place ourselves closer to the position of this woman and her costly perfume that we might be as moved as she to show great love? How might we humble ourselves to sit at the feet, if you will, of our neighbors who have borne the brunt of systematic discrimination in this land. To take time and to learn more of their daily realities and follow their lead in taking action for justice and reconciliation. Today you'll be receiving this kind of invitation. 
um, during our offering time. Simply an invitation to get together with your neighbors, assuming that you have some neighbors who are different from you, perhaps who have different means than you, and to do this kind of listening and learning so that you will be informed as you go about trying to show great love. Because white people ignorantly trying to show great love doesn't generally go very well. How might we stand with our neighbors for what is right and good and moves us all further into the kingdom of love and not be satisfied with a cheap mercy, but in gratitude to God to participate in the Spirit's groaning toward a new heavens and a new earth? We cannot pay our debt to mercy, nor should we try but we can offer ourselves fully to the love which is only fully at home in the presence of justice, an equitable sharing of that which belongs to God, which is everything. Amen.